the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blinn producing, Dave King engineering in Portland, Pedro Bartes producing and engineering in Seattle. Today I'm looking forward to a conversation later this hour with Arlene McLean. She is the author of Really God? Are you kidding me? <laughs> we'll talk about her and the book that's coming up later this hour, Arlene McLean. We'll also cover some of the day's headlines, beginning with the fact that House Republicans unanimously passed an impeachment inquiry, an act that allows them greater power to investigate the president and his family's business practices. In the Wednesday afternoon vote, all 221 Republicans in the House supported adopting the impeachment inquiry resolution. It's not an impeachment, it's an inquiry, while 212 Democrats opposed that measure. The anticipated vote comes after then-Speaker Kevin McCarthy launched the presidential impeachment inquiry in September. An informal move that Democrats and the White House have decried as unconstitutional and politically motivated. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, whose committee has helped lead the investigation of the president's alleged involvement in his son's foreign influence peddling schemes, told reporters last week that nothing in the Constitution prevents a House speaker from opening an impeachment inquiry without a full House vote. Constitutionally, it's not required, Speaker said uh, uh, we're an impeachment inquiry, then we're an impeachment inquiry. Well, that's what happened. Well, on Tuesday, he reiterated that an official impeachment inquiry resolution would give Republican-led committee more legal weight when filing subpoenas against the Biden family and those close business associates in the case. Now, impeachment is a funny thing. If your party is impeaching a member of the other party, then it's necessary, as was the case with Democrats who insisted that they were, in fact, not politically motivated And then the Republicans who insist that they are not politically motivated, but it is uh, something of a disruption, perhaps necessary, perhaps not, uh, of the uh, people's business. In other news, House Republicans said that they will um, initiate contempt of Congress proceedings against Hunter Biden after he refused to appear for a scheduled closed door deposition. Hunter today defied lawful subpoenas, and we will now initiate contempt of Congress proceedings. The House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer and House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan said we will not provide special treatment because his last name is Biden. As our committee, we're, uh, as our committees were today prepared to depose Hunter Biden, he chose to make a public statement on Capitol Hill instead where he said his father, Joe Biden, was not financially involved in his family's business dealings. Exactly how was Joe Biden involved? Evidence shows Joe Biden met with Hunter's business associates and his name was at the center of the family business strategy, the pair added. Well, Hunter Biden appeared outside the Capitol this afternoon and told reporters he will only testify before the House Oversight Committee if he can do so in a public hearing. The committee previously issued a subpoena to the younger Biden, compelling him to participate in a deposition. He was scheduled to give a closed-door testimony on Wednesday. What are they afraid of? I'm here. I'm ready, Hunter said. 
outside the Capitol on Wednesday. He said he was uh, given the option to participate in depositions or committee hearings. Well, I've chosen. I'm here to testify at a public hearing today to answer any of the committee's legitimate questions. Well, he is attempting to call the shots. Members of the uh, House are not willing to give him that authority. Former President Donald Trump cannot assert presidential immunity in a defamation lawsuit brought by writer E.J. E. Jean Carroll, the U.S. Appeals Court, ruled on Wednesday. The Second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Manhattan upheld a federal judge's decision not to allow Trump's blanket claim of presidential immunity in the case, prompting the former president's legal team to seek a review from the U.S. Supreme Court. The Second Circuit's ruling is fundamentally flawed, and we will seek immediate review from the Supreme Court. One of Trump's lawyers in the case said the appeal was heard on an expedited basis ahead of a scheduled trial on the 16th of January. In the lawsuit, Carol is seeking at least $10 million in damages from Trump over comments he made about her in June of 2019 during his presidential turn in the White House. Carol, a former Elle magazine columnist, initially accused Trump of rape and sexual assault in Manhattan in the mid-90s. In response, the former president denied ever knowing Carol and said she made up the claim for attention. She then sued in November of 2019. In December of 2022, Trump asserted presidential immunity shielded him from the lawsuit. The president's unique office grants him complete immunity from many types of civil lawsuits while in office. This delay, however, was ultimately cited by U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan in Manhattan when he rejected Trump's bid to dismiss Carroll's case and refused to let Trump raise an immunity defense. Well, on Wednesday, the Second Circuit Court uh, said that those decisions were correct. A three-year delay is more than enough under our procedures to qualify as undue, the three-judge panel wrote, in its opinion. The attorney for E. Jean Carroll responded, We are pleased that the Second Circuit affirmed Judge Kaplan's rulings and that we can now move forward with trial next month on January 16th. Again, Trump is going to appeal that decision. Well, the Supreme Court announced today that it's taking on a case regarding the Food and Drug Administration's approval of the chemical abortion pill Mifepristone. Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the American College of Pediatricians and the Christian Medical and Dental Associations filed a lawsuit against the FDA in November of last year, claiming that the FDA had ignored safety protocols to approve the abortion pill. The Supreme Court said this week that it would hear the case, one of the first major abortion cases taken up the court since the overturn of Roe v. Wade in June of last year. The Supreme Court in April ruled against the plaintiffs in a 7-2 decision with Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas dissenting regarding a request for a temporary stay of the FDA's ability to administer the drug. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, however, ruled in August that the FDA must reverse uh, changes it made allowing the pill to be mailed online and dispensed by pharmacies without a doctor's prescription the FDA appealed that decision to the Supreme Court in September. According to Axios, the court noted in its decision Wednesday that oral arguments on the case would be limited to one hour. The FDA does not comment on possible pending or ongoing litigation, it told uh, media outlets. We'll certainly follow that story coming up in the days ahead. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited the Washington, D.C., uh, Congress on Tuesday they failed to win over skeptical lawmakers who were weary of sending more money abroad to fund a war effort that appears to have stalled. The high-profile visit 
marked a stark contrast to Zelensky's glorified appearances last December when he addressed a joint session of Congress. This time, some senators reportedly didn't even stick around to hear his one-hour pitch. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, a vocal supporter of Ukraine funding, admitted it was practically impossible to act before Christmas. Zelensky's decision to visit Capitol Hill and the White House comes amid conservatives' demand for strong border security measures to be paired with additional Ukraine funding. Well, the president is asking for $60 billion more to fund Ukraine's war effort against Russia. Since the February 2022 invasion, Congress has approved $113 billion at a cost of $900 per American household. Their generosity, however, appears to be waning. A recent morning consult polls, a poll rather, found that just 41 percent support for sending more money to Ukraine. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back. A reminder, coming up later this hour, Arlene McLean, her her book, Really, God? Are you kidding me? There's a subtitle. We'll tell you more in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, a conversation with Arlene McLean. Her latest book, her first, Really, God? Are you kidding me? Trusting God when life isn't funny. That's coming up uh, later this hour. Well, Jarrett Stepman, in considering our role in the world, and in particular funding of Ukraine and other initiatives, said, I think of myself as an historian more than a statesman. That was a quote from Henry Kissinger. He was once reflecting. He recently passed away on November 29th. At the age of 100, he left an extensive legacy of government service and foreign policy writings. He served Presidents Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford as Secretary of State in the 70s, but frequently insisted that he was an historian first. As an historian, you have to be conscious, rather, of the fact that every civilization, rather, that has ever existed has ultimately collapsed, he said, adding, history is a tale of efforts that failed, of aspirations that turned out to be different from what one expected. So as we're, uh, so as um, weren't realized of wishes that were fulfilled, and then then a historian One has to live with a sense of inevitability of tragedy, end quote. Well, Kissinger built up an extensive and often much criticized record in policy and academics. His detractors labeled him a monster and a war criminal in life, and they're certainly continued after his death. His policy ideas often came under the fire from left and right. Regardless of the criticism, Kissinger undoubtedly was one of the most consequential architects of American foreign policy in the 20th century. On the latest episode um, of uh, the military and world stage, perhaps we need something very like that. Perhaps we need to reconsider the giant of of American foreign policy and where the U.S. goes next. Again, a commentary, Jarrett Stepman, encouraging us to think more deeply about it all. Well, President Joe Biden warned Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Tuesday that Israel might lose international support over its post-war plans for Gaza. At a Democratic fundraiser in D.C., the president called the current Israeli government the most conservative government in Israeli history and added that Netanyahu doesn't want a two-state solution, which Biden said needs to change. Israel's security can rest on the United States, but right now it has more than the United States. It has the European Union. It has Europe. 
It is uh, most of the world. But they're starting to lose that support by indiscriminate bombing that takes place. End quote. This is President Biden speaking. Well, Netanyahu admitted in a video on Tuesday that he and President Biden have a disagreement over post-war plans for Gaza. Biden has said that the Palestinian Authority should take control of post-war Gaza, while Netanyahu said that he will not allow Israel to repeat the mistake of Oslo. The Oslo Accords established the Palestinian Authority in the 1990s, which ruled Gaza until Hamas took over in 2007. Yes, there is a disagreement about the day after Hamas, and I hope we will reach an agreement here as well. After the great sacrifice of our civilians and soldiers, I will not allow the the entry into Gaza of those who educate for terrorism support, terrorism and finance terrorism. Gaza will be neither a Hamasten or Fatahstan, Netanyahu said in a video on Tuesday. Well, President Biden has said that the United States won't support post-war solutions that include Israeli authority in Gaza. His administration has instead called for a concentrated effort toward a two-state solution. Well, we've been there before. You cannot say there's no Palestinian state at all in the future, and that's going to be uh, the hard part, Biden said on Monday at a White House Hanukkah reception. In the meantime, we're not going to do a thing, he used an expletive, other than protect Israel in the process. Not a single thing, the president went on to say. Well, about one in five mail-in voters in the 2020 election admit to engaging in some type of voting irregularity, a poll released Tuesday showed. Now, how reliable is this poll? It was a Rasmussen poll. Only 1,085 people, likely voters, sponsored by the Heartland Institute, the free market think tank from November 30th to December 6th, participated in this thing. Well, the Heartland Rasmussen poll found that of that 1,085, 17% of mail-in voters surveyed said that in 2020 they voted in a state Uh, where they're no longer a permanent resident. Voting in a state where the voter doesn't live is, of course, illegal. Another 21% of mail-in voters surveyed said they filled out a ballot for a friend or family member. In addition, 17% of those voters said they signed a ballot for a friend or a family member with or without his or her permission. Well, state laws vary on what assistance is allowed in filling out a ballot, but all states ban filling out a ballot or forging a ballot for someone else. The poll found that 10 percent of all respondents, not just those who voted by mail, said they know a friend, a family member, co-worker or other acquaintance who has admitted that he or she has cast a mail-in ballot in 2020 in a state other than his or her state of permanent residence. A smaller portion, 8 percent, said that they were offered pay or a reward for voting in 2020. It's a felony to buy or sell votes. In 2020, an election year affected by COVID-19, the pandemic, a record 43 percent of voters voted by mail, according to the Election Assistance Commission. In past elections, only about one quarter of voters were by mail. In the poll, however, 30 percent said they voted by mail in 2020 when Democratic nominee Joe Biden defeated incumbent President Donald Trump. These surveys results uh, show the importance of implementing forward-looking fixes to election rules and procedures that currently allow and encourage fraud. That's a quote from President James Taylor from the Heartland Institute in a public statement. Regardless of what one's views are on the outcome of the 2020 presidential elections, Americans deserve an election system that is undeniably transparent and immune from mischief, Taylor went on to say. These survey results conclusively illustrate that election fraud is a rampant and pervasive problem that undermines our democracy. 
also known as a constitutional republic, but we won't go into it. As explained in the book, the myth of voter suppression, absentee and mail-in voting historically has been the largest source of voter fraud. With regard to enfranchisement, the Rasmussen Heartland poll asked, if your state banned mail-in balloting in next year's presidential election, would you choose to vote in person or would you choose not to vote at all? Nearly all of those surveyed, 94%, said they would just vote in person. Another 2% said they would, uh, wouldn't vote, while 4% said they weren't really sure. And we've got another election coming up in 2024. House Speaker Mike Johnson on Tuesday defended the vote scheduled uh, and uh, that took place earlier today to formalize the impeachment inquiry into the president, arguing that unlike what Democrats did with the sham impeachment of former President Trump, and I'm quoting, Republicans are committed to the rule of law. Reporter Chad Pergram, he pressed Johnson on an ex- expectation from the GOP base to bring an impeachment vote sometime in the spring ahead of the election in 2024. Johnson explained that House Republicans have come to this impasse in their investigations into the president's alleged involvement in Sun Hunter's business dealings and are hitting a stone wall because the White House is impeding that investigation and not allowing witnesses to come forward and thousands of pages of documents. The vote on the resolution to formalize the House impeachment inquiry, which is currently um, a passed, is not the same as a vote to impeach. We have no choice to fulfill our constitutional responsibility, he said. We have to take the next steps. We're not making a political decision. It's not. It's a legal decision. President Biden's nominee for a key Washington, D.C. area transportation board is a billionaire Biden campaign donor and bundler who flies some. Um, Frequently on a private jet and co-owns a professional sports franchise, Biden's first nominated Samuel Slater to serve on the board of directors of the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority shortly after taking office in 2021. But he was forced to re-nominate him this year after his nomination was stalled in the Senate Commerce Committee. The uh, organization, again, Metropolitan Washington Airport Authority, MWAA, is mainly tasked with overseeing the operations of Reagan National and Dulles International, the region's two central airports. Slater, who is a prolific Democrat uh, campaign donor, did considerable work for Biden in 2020 in his presidential campaign. He individually contributed $140,000 to Biden's campaign, according to Federal Elections Commission data, while serving on the campaign's National Finance Committee and as a bundler, a person who collects and organizes other campaign dollar uh, donors' contributions. Slater donated another $150,000 to Biden's inaugural committee in December of 2020, according to the American Accountability Foundation, a right-leaning nonprofit watchdog group that investigates Slater's campaign contributions. In a questionnaire, Slater returned to Senate Commerce Committee Republicans ahead of his confirmation hearing last month. He said he didn't believe his considerable donations to Biden's campaign and the Democratic National Committee presented a conflict of interest. Low-cost carrier Southwest Airlines is being celebrated by passengers of size on TikTok after they discovered they can request complimentary seats on one or two, depending on needs, to accommodate their girth. Customers whose bodies encroach past the armrest are entitled to an extra seat, according to Southwest's inclusion policy. They are currently one of the few, if not the only, airline to offer free seats to larger passengers. Southwest provides its policy Uh, which said that passengers of size have the option of purchasing just one seat and then discussing your seat needs with the customer service agent at the departure gate. If it's uh, determined that a second or third seat is needed, you'll be accommodated with a complimentary additional seat. The flight team will then try to... um, uh, 
make a seat arrangement, potentially moving other passengers around for the unplanned accommodation, which you would think they would make before boarding, but that's another matter. Alternatively, customers can purchase extra seats in advance and then contact Southwest for a refund of the cost of additional seating after travel. The policy states uh, customers who encroach upon any part of the neighboring seat may proactively purchase the needed number of seats prior to travel to ensure the additional seats are available. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Coming up later this hour, a conversation with Arlene McLean. Her first book, Really God? Are You Kidding Me? Trusting God When Life Isn't Funny. She also has the Funny Faith Walk. Some comedy bits to help uh, lift you up as well. We'll talk with her about this first effort. Well, a history teacher at a Seattle high school allegedly gave a student a failing quiz grade after he answered that only women can get pregnant and only men can have, well, male parts. Well, the 10th grade ethnic studies world history teacher at Chief Stealth International High School administered the quiz. The test focused on understanding gender versus sex and asked students to answer a series of multi, multiple choice and true and false questions. Question four of the exam asked students to identify whether the statement all men have male parts is true or false. The student marked the statement true, which was labeled as incorrect by the teacher. Question seven of the quiz similarly asked students to identify whether the statement only women can get pregnant was true or false. The teacher again marked the student's answer incorrect when he said the statement was true. Of course, it is true. Several other questions ask students to answer questions like, when someone uses they, them pronouns, what does that mean about their gender identity? And true, false, transgender people are gay. Well, the student's mother, who asked to remain anonymous, expressed concern that the school is allowing teachers to bring political beliefs into the classroom. She said, I keep trying to wrap my head around how it's uh, legal to teach inaccurate information and force students to answer against their beliefs or receive negative scores, the mother said. She also claimed teachers have called her son by some rather unflattering names that include racist, but is not limited to that, and a product of the patriarchy that teaches young boys not to care about anything. Well, the school outright denied that such name-calling occurred. A district response, a, a media inquiry, uh, revealed that the a, a knowledge check quiz was administered approximately two weeks ago at Chief Stealth International High School in the Ethnic Studies class, but stressed that the quiz, uh, the quiz results did not impact the final class grade of students. Well, it certainly did something. Uh, they took the test, the teacher marked it wrong, and the student was humiliated. Whether or not it counts in the final uh, tally of his uh, performance is almost irrelevant. They went on to say the Seattle Public Schools course description for the Ethnic Studies World History class underscores that students will be investigating the global economy, society and culture. Claims that the student was called names have not been reported to SPS, so they just assume it didn't happen. We have confirmed with schools principals that this is the first reference to any name calling the district continued. It's almost beside the point, given the test. But SPS, they went on to say, remains committed to fostering inclusive environments that encourage the exploration of contemporary issues, particularly the examination of power systems such as racism and patriarchy. This dedication extends to providing a space for thoughtful exploration and dialogue on these issues, end quote. Well, I guess that takes care of that. The state can, in education systems, compel students, minors, to lie on tests in order to succeed. That's a practice you don't want to necessarily get good at, but it certainly could be exploited long into adulthood.
Meanwhile, a Portland, Oregon business owner's store was vandalized a day after displaying religious-themed decorations in the front window. Kay Newell, the owner of Sunland Lighting, Inc., spoke with Fox Business about her store and explained that she wanted to represent a variety of religious traditions in her front window to hopefully foster peace in a time of turmoil. Well, she said she put up the display the night before the vandalism occurred. The store displays uh, represented Kwanzaa, Buddhism, Judaism, Hinduism, Christianity, Muslim, um, Native American, and other religions. She covered them all. Other windows in the shop showcased classic Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman. The person who broke the window was riding on a bike carrying a river rock, she says. And although the Christian, Jewish, and Muslim decoration displays were vandalized, the other religious-themed displays representing Kwanzaa, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Native Americans were not. She added that she believes it's no coincidence that there was uh, damage to the particular display on December 7th, the first night of Hanukkah. Well, President Biden has given Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky $200 million during his visit to the capital, far short of what Zelensky was hoping for. But the Ukrainian president found a sympathetic but unmoved audience in Republicans on Capitol Hill on Tuesday as he made a personal appeal for more money and weapons to bolster his forces in this war against Vladimir Putin's Russia. Many lawmakers of both parties support tens of billions of dollars in new aid for Kyiv, but House and Senate Republicans, they're also demanding a crackdown on crossings at the southern border. Border. U.S. border has a uh, as a condition of their votes, a step Democrats have rejected. Well, that policy fight has left funding for Kiev at the standstill uh, headed into Christmas break, almost certainly pushing any deal into next year, just as the White House has uh, warned that previous rounds of cash and supplies are almost exhausted. Harvard President Claudine Gay will keep her job after disastrous and discriminatory testimony to Congress last week. Gay also won't be punished for rampant plagiarism found by Uh, reporters and is asking for corrections. The Harvard Corporation says this, in this tumultuous and difficult time, we unanimously stand in support of President Gay. It helps that she's female, she's a minority, and, well, they're just not going to let her go. But she has violated the ethics of Harvard. And there is another black professor at the university is calling for her removal. Israel's IDF has begun flooding Hamas tunnels with seawater, Israel's military began pumping the seawater into Hamas's vast complex of tunnels in Gaza, according to U.S. officials briefed on the military operations, part of an intensive effort to destroy the underground infrastructure that's underpinned the group's operations. The move to flood the tunnels with water from the Mediterranean, which is in an early stage, is one of several techniques Israel is using to try to clear and destroy the tunnels. Israeli officials say that Hamas's underground system has been key to its operations on the battlefield. The tunnel system, they say, is used by Hamas to maneuver fighters across the battlefield and store the group's rockets and munitions and enables the group's leaders to command and control their forces. House GOP advanced impeachment inquiry resolution teeing up a vote and President Biden's latest tall, uh, telltale, rather tall tale, involves a brain aneurysm, a helicopter and Ronald Reagan. You can look it up. One in five mail-in voters admit they cheated in the 2020 election. And Biden administration is sending billions to California's over-budget, behind-scheduled train to nowhere. Inflation slowed to a 3.1% annual rate in November. And ADL reports a staggering 337% increase in anti-Semitic incidents. Virginia Democrats uh, featured in streamed sex acts online says she's a victim 
And a Texas woman denied abortion of a baby with fetal anomaly left the state to obtain the abortion. And Hamas officials have begun to flee to foreign countries amid fears that Israel is about to end their reign. And on this day in history, 1862, Union forces led by Major General Ambrose Burnside launched futile attacks against entrenched Confederate soldiers. During the Civil Battle of Fredericksburg, Northern troops soundly defeat, uh, defeated would withdraw two days later. 1918, President Woodrow Wilson arrives in France, becoming the first U.S. chief executive to visit Europe while in office. 1977, that's quite a leap. An Air Indian, uh, Indiana Flight 216, a DC-3 carrying the University of Evansville basketball team on a flight to Nashville, crashes shortly after takeoff, killing all 29 people on board. 1978, the Philadelphia Mint began stamping the Susan B. Anthony dollar, which would go into circulation the following July. 1996, the UN Security Council chooses Kofi Annan of Ghana to become the world body's seventh secretary general. 2000, George W. Bush claims the presidency a day after the U.S. Supreme Court shuts down further recounts of disputed ballots in Florida. Al Gore concedes and calls for national unity. 2002, Cardinal Bernard Law resigns as Boston Archbishop because of the priest sex abuse scandal. 2003, Saddam Hussein is captured by U.S. forces while hiding in a spider hole under a farmhouse in Adwar, Iraq, near his hometown of Tikrit. 2017, Congressional Republicans reach an agreement on a major overhaul of the nation's tax laws that would provide generous tax cuts for corporations and the wealthiest Americans, middle and low income families would get smaller tax cuts. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, the House Judiciary Committee votes to adopt two articles of impeachment against President Trump. Well, impeachment is still on the minds of those in Washington. Well, coming up, I'm looking forward to a conversation with a uh, former colleague here at KPDQ and current author Arlene McLean. Her book is titled Really, God, Are You Kidding Me? Trusting God When Life Isn't Funny. She has a great sense of humor. She has a way of drawing uh, readers into their relationship with God by asking poignant questions and encouraging us to engage in that kind of authentic conversation with God himself. That's coming up In our next uh, couple of segments, Arlene McLean, Really God, Are You Kidding Me? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. And I have to tell you, I'm really looking forward to these next couple of segments because I have in studio a dear friend who happens to be a gifted writer, a gifted comedian, and someone who's just published a book. And we're going to talk about her book, Really God? Are you kidding me? The subtitle, Trusting God When Life Isn't Funny. I think most of us have lived through those kinds of seasons, and we're going to talk about how to navigate them with your faith intact. And Arlene has lived through some, uh, as the song Amazing Grace says, dangers, toils, and snares. She came out on the other side trusting God with her relationship intact and her love for him Uh, even greater. Well, Arlene McLean, she writes, she speaks, and she goofs off with God every chance she gets. Her project, Funny Faith Walk, encompasses her writing, her speaking, and comedy with a view to encourage people like you and me and their walk with God. Her first book, Really, God, Are You Kidding Me?, weaves together real-life stories, scripture, journal prompts, and prayer in a way that makes it easy to connect with God, even when life is less than perfect, which is pretty much all the time. And when you need a quick fix to carry you through the latest 
this challenge, you can find Arlene's comedy bits at funnyfaithwalk.com. Arlene McLean, welcome. Thanks, Georgina. It's so good to be here with you. You know, I have to confess that I have longed for this day for many months uh, because I have prayed for you through the process of writing this book. And we'll talk a little bit about your faith journey, but this is just such a tremendous answer to prayer. And the fruit that has been born through the challenges that you faced has just really been an encouragement and blessing to me. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. It's so nice. It is sweet to be here with you because you were the first person I talked with about really God when that whole came to fruition. And I was like, you know, what do you think of this? And and we were like, yeah. So it has been a long time coming, but it's been great to really see what God has walked us through to get to this point. Yeah. Well, in the interest of full disclosure, you and I have worked together mm-hmm. here at KPDQ Radio in Portland for many, many years. I haven't actually calculated how many years. Don't. It makes us sound old. We just met the other day. <laughs> exactly. We just started this. Yeah, we just uh, new acquaintances. <laughs> it just happened. Uh, anyway, we, we have worked together for a number of years. You worked in the sales department. We're the top seller here in the the Portland market. Seller probably isn't the right word, but Ah, I I don't know what I'm talking about. So (laughs) that's what I'm going to call it. Um, But you've done a great job. You've now retired, but you and I worked together for many years here at the station. And as I mentioned, uh, we've walked together through some pretty tough things. And I've been an observer at how you've leaned into God when it would have been just as easy to just run away and say, you know, really, God, I'm done. that's, That's so true. Well, the book is based on your life experiences. You walked through some pretty tough seasons coming out on the other side, as I mentioned, with your faith intact. Tell us just a little bit about your life journey. Okay, that sounds like a good place to start, because it is interesting that all of us, uh, like most of your listeners, we're, we're coming through life, everything's going great, and then something comes up, something happens. And in my case, uh, my husband we were happily married for 17 years, his cancer came back, and then within six months, he was dead. He had died. And I'm a widow at uh, 54 years old. And I have to confess that at that point, my faith was really shook. I was very angry at God. How could this be, God? We're doing all this work for you. My husband and I have a home group. He's a, he's gone to seminary. He, we're ministering for you. And, and why did this suddenly end? And what's fascinating is I'd always been attracted to my husband because of his deep faith in God. And he had gone through some hard times. And so it was interesting how his death made me go through hard times and strengthen my faith in a way that nothing else could have done. And so it really was fascinating to me that that's how it happened. And, you know, when you're really mad at God, I decided I'm just going to have real conversations with God. Mm -hmm. God, I'm mad at you. Why did this happen? And it was really a turning point in my relationship with the Lord to be able to become more genuine, to spend time really talking with God. And uh, so that's where some of these uh, ideas that are in the book, as far as journaling, writing out scripture verses, just the power of that really came to fruition for me. And I appreciated that. So that's how this book all kind of got started. Yeah. And I appreciate that authenticity. I think sometimes we think that we have to have King James English to approach God in a way that that impresses him by our our um, our prowess. We speak well and God bends his ear because we, we sound so attractive to him. And yet what you're describing and what I believe God wants from us is genuine, authentic conversation in which we bear our hearts. He's able to to answer our questions. He's able to bear that criticism that we might have, even though it's unwarranted and we don't understand that. Mm-hmm. And that authenticity that you write about and that I've witnessed in your personal life has really uh, been an encouragement and a challenge to me. 
Well, if you think about it, God made each of us very unique, very different. He didn't make me like you or you like me or us like other people. So in that creation of us that he made us so unique and different, he wants a relationship with that unique and different person that he created. Yeah. And so that's kind of the beauty of it is just realizing that warts and all, you know, things I find funny, people may not always find funny, but, you know, it's just the relationship I have with that, with the Lord. You know, I appreciate that emphasis on how different each one of us is. That's by design. And God doesn't want me to mimic you. Uh, he's already got you. He mm-hmm. wants me to be authentic and, and speak to him as myself. And uh, I appreciate that, that um, remembrance. Now, your book, Really God, is infused with humor and grace. It reminds uh, your readers that God is ever present and approachable. How did you learn that lesson? You, t- you touched on it just a moment ago, but how did you learn that, that lesson? Because our natural tendency is to turn the other way and run. We see that throughout scripture. We've witnessed it in our own lives. That, that's a good point. So when this whole issue with Paul dying, my husband dies, and I go through this period of grief, and it's about three years later that I feel like I'm getting my feet back on the ground, and uh, God has become much more real to me when I get the phone call. And I'm just like, wow, out of the blue, I get the phone call. You can probably relate to it as a listener. You're just humming along in life again, and something happens. And this time, the phone call said, you have breast cancer. Mm. And I was just like, and I, it was the oddest feeling, and it was the birth of really God, because I was like, first I was, I cried, obviously, and I was upset. And then I thought, really, God? Because I'm writing this book about Paul's struggle with cancer. My mom had cancer. I have cancer. Boy, people with cancer must be my people group. I can talk to anybody <laughs> about anything. And I kind of chuckled just like that. I was like, Wow. And then I saw in an instant how my faith had changed from before when Paul was alive and he died and I went through all that grief. Now I found myself in a state of, I believe, I trust, I trust you, Lord, because I know you. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that is really God. No matter what we go through life, whether we know God or not, everyone, when bad things happen, goes, really, God, what are you thinking here? And I thought, oh, that's a nice little jumping off point. You know, I appreciate your sense of humor because you don't cross the line into inappropriate, but it, it really does reflect what I think many of us are feeling. And it's that little bit of relief that, that we can express when we're in the middle of a mystery that we don't know the, the end uh, of. We don't know the all of the details that led up to it, and we don't know all the details of what we're right. going through. But it's that just relief valve that allows us to say, you know what, this is not surprising to God. It's fairly common to men, mm-hmm. and God is going to carry me through this. Really, God? What, yeah. What's going what, on? What's happening here? <laughs> and I think the joy and delight in the Lord is something he, he loves from his children. Yeah, yeah. Now, did you imagine at that point, now you've lost your husband, now you've been diagnosed with breast cancer. Did you imagine at that point that what you would go through and successfully, I would add, would ultimately lead to ministry opportunity, that you would be in a position to encourage and inspire others? I did not. It's like I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I really didn't have a sense. And so really, this is God's ministry. He created it. He made it all happen. And I often in writing a book, people who have done it go, wow, this is really difficult and you want to give up. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you can't. It's not mine. It's his. So, yeah. Well, and I've witnessed that diligence through some pretty tough things. And it was interesting to me because there are times when you were writing that it was obvious this is very painful to look back on. It's very painful to put pen to paper, to make a record of it. 
and then to um, turn that in such a way that others can read it and find solace and help and direction. And you always urge your readers to draw nearer to God. That's really the point. Not I'm funny. I'm clever. You're all of those things. But your focus is always turning and focusing our attention on God, who he is, what he's doing, what he's done, and that we can rest in him and find what we need. Yeah. And the whole issue of trying to get me out of it. My story just introduces a topic, but then it goes into the whole structure is how do you talk to God? It's about the reader. It's not, you know, here's a lifelong story about this lady who's done all these things. It's not. It's more you know, this is something you can apply and use. I just introduce topics. Yeah. We're talking with Arlene McLean. She is the author of Really God? Are You Kidding Me? Trusting God When Life Isn't Funny. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but we do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I have with me in studio Arlene McLean, who happens to be a very dear friend. She writes, she speaks, and, well, she goofs off with God every chance she gets. She's the author of Really God? Are You Kidding Me? Trusting God When Life Isn't Funny. And when you need a quick fix to carry you through the latest challenge, you can find Arlene's comedy bits at Funny Faith Walk. Dot com. It's so fun for me because I watched all of this unfold. I watched all of the, um, you know, the sausage being made, the difficult parts and the tasty parts all brought together to produce this uh, this book that I think is going to be a blessing to a lot of folks. So I'm pretty excited about I it. I am, too. Now, one might imagine that and I wouldn't because I know you. I was there. Anyway, one might imagine <laughs> that you floated through tough everyday events without a hiccup. Is that true? And what do you say to listeners who at this very moment are struggling? My heart is really towards people who are struggling. And and I just want that person to know that they are not alone. It's amazing to me. All of us struggle. We all you know, go to church and put on our Sunday best. But we all have times of darkness, of doubt, of fear. And i that's really my heart message is that you're not alone. Not only do I care about you, but God loves you way more than anything else. And so what I really try to help people understand is there's a concept here, the community. We're all longing for a community. We want people around us who, A, know us genuinely, that we can be honest with, and they will support us. And so that's that's really what I try to put into my life, and I encourage them to do as well. Find a prayer buddy. I've had prayer buddies that we only talk once a week, 7 a.m. every Friday. We're on Zoom. We jump right in with what the prayer, what's going on with a life that's a struggle, and we pray. And it's just such a blessing. You have to have that anymore. Now, did you initiate that? Because I think some of us think, well, there's really nobody. Did you have to initiate that? Yes, we did. We purposely set that up. I had met this person through Chambers. She doesn't go to my church. We don't have any other overlapping really in our lives. And so it's really, it's wonderful just to have someone that you can just jump in, say, here's what's going on. And that confidence, being a safe person that will keep other people's confidence. There's nothing worse than gossip in the church because it just breeds deception. It just breeds problems. But if you can find people that are safe and share your life, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Now, really, God is designed to help readers apply their faith to everyday events, whether they're joyful events or sad events. You've had some pretty hard days. How has humor helped carry you through some of the of life's most difficult moments and seasons? You know, I, I'm a big fan of 
finding humor every day, even if it's silly cat videos on social media or chuckle buddies, I call them. My friends, I just call up or send them something weird and we just talk about that. The point is, is that when you're looking for humor, you'll find it. But there are days, and no one's kidding you here, where you're depressed, you're in bed, you're nothing's funny, and you're in, you're not going to get out of bed. And I think there's an appreciation for that. I'm a highly emotional person. So I have a lot of humor and I have a lot of, you know, these types of extremes. But it's like learning to live with that. And one of the things that, you know, the book, when we wrote it, we, God and I, I guess, (laughs) was putting in, uh, talking to people, not only for people who are in the faith and who are struggling, you know, for the person like us, or it's a book you can hand to someone else who's struggling. Or you can feel safe handing that book to someone that you want to witness to. Mm-hmm. And so it's really tried to be written and open in an easygoing, gracious manner. And I think that's what the key is. We want to be gracious to one another. You know, I would agree. Your book is not preachy. You you write about God in a way that you're writing about your dear friend. And so you don't feel like you're eavesdropping. You don't feel like, oh, you know, this is something that I could never uh, aspire to. It's a relationship that I think your reader will long for. And you give sort of a roadmap. How do I how do I get that kind of a relationship, that kind of closeness with God, uh, whether my circumstances are extremely challenging and I feel like I've been in large measure abandoned or I'm just uh, in a season of uncertainty. You'll find that in the way you write the book. It's very approachable and you make God very approachable in, in the same way. Yeah, and I think it's important to really think about, say, your best friend in life. How, how, what do you do with your best friend? Well, you spend time with your best friend. You're honest with your best friend. You trust your best friend. And so reaching those types of um, investment in time and, and genuineness and being transparent with the Lord comes back to you, but you have to really invest the time. Yeah. Now, let's talk about how really God is structured Um, short stories to introduce the topic, invitations to respond, relevant scripture, conversation starters. Kind of walk us through how it's structured. Okay, what what it is, it's structured very much like that. I I like to look at it this way. It's, uh, first of all, we're going to introduce a topic, and the topic could be anything about sex or all these topics that people never want to talk about. So there's lots of topics in the book. So we introduce the topic through this little story. Then what I do is I say, reader, what do you think of this? So you get to write, well, you know, this is about, uh, let's say, pornography. Let's just pick something that most people don't talk about. So it says, what do you, here's a story about my life with pornography and how it affected me. What do you think of pornography? What does God think about it from the, the scriptures and the Bible verses? And then the next section is, what do you think of what God just thinks about this? And how does that change your thinking? And then also, then you can pray, um, apply what you've learned and go down to a key point. And they are very simple chapters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the subjects. You mentioned one, but some of the subjects that you cover, because I, I find it's very comprehensive in, in some ways. Yeah, there are like four sections, five sections to the book. And first section is kind of everyday life. Life has its moments, you know. Things like being rejected, um, when you have doubts, beating yourself with a doubt stick, you know, just things like that. The second one, the second section is what God wants. What does God want from us? Um, What is a relationship with God like? 
the next section is work and daily life, which is kind of fun because it talks about, am I too old to run away? It talks about, you know, life is overwhelming to me. How do I make decisions? There are chapters on all of Mm -hmm. that on what motivates us. There's an entire section on relationships and sex. And it's funny to me how many of my friends go, oh, yeah, I went right to the sex part, which I think the next book should be all about sex because I think it's super (laughs) important. But, you know, that's just me. Um, And then the next section is hard times and grief. And so it talks about, you know, there's one of my favorite ones is it talked about when my husband was diagnosed and one of my friends came to me and said, oh, she goes, Arlene, you got to know that people will say dumb things to you. And I I was like, she's right. People say really (laughs) weird things to you when they find out you're going through stuff like that. You know, I'm right now I'm going through my mind. What dumb thing did I say during that season? <laughs> no, you did the right thing. You came to me and said, I remember it clearly. You gave me a hug and said, I'll be there with you. And it was like, yes, I knew you would be. It was it was the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but and so there's some on, on hard times and grief and going through those processes with my husband and then sickness and getting older is really a fun one because fun because it talks about things like breast cancer jokes. Who gets to tell them and what's appropriate? Because some of my friends had very inappropriate <laughs> breast cancer jokes, and it cracked me up that, you know, it made me think about this. So I just think there's lots of fun things. My favorite chapter may be, I used to be better looking. I kind of <laughs> want to have pins made up about that because I think when we get older, we're like, people don't see us as that wonderful, beautiful person we used to be. They just see us as this old person in their way at the store, so... <laughs> yeah, I really don't want to talk about that yeah. chapter <laughs> since I'm older than you. So ah. we'll just we'll, we'll move on. Now, again, uh, one of the things I appreciate your book appreciate about your book is that you encourage uh, your readers to consider some very serious topics. But in uh, you add a lighthearted element to it that makes it bearable because some of these things are very difficult. Um, but you make it bearable. And uh, God wants us to be able to navigate through life through those very difficult things and still maintain something of a lightness in our soul. And I think this humor um, adds to that. Tell us about the funny faith walk, the comedy resource that you also uh, have available. You know, comedy takes down a lot of barriers and, and knits us together pretty instantly. And so that's why comedy kind of started out as the beginning to things. Uh, I do speak with people. I do lots of kinds of events. I teach classes sometimes. And we always start with a little comedy to get us all on the same page. And people laugh and they loosen up and they're like, okay, this lady's weird, but we kind of like her. And then they hear what you have to say. So it's just part of that. So at the website, funnyfaithwalk.com, there's a lot of different uh, ways to explore how I can come and, you know, help work with people. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Arlene McLean. She writes, she speaks, she uh, has written the book, her first book, Really God? Are You Kidding Me? She weaves together real life stories and scripture, journal prompts, prayer in a way that makes uh, makes it easy to connect with God when life is tough. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation and wrap things up in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I still have Arlene McLean in studio. She writes, she speaks, and her latest book, her first, Really, God, Are You Kidding Me? Uh, it's a great book for those of us who live in the world in the 21st century. Because if you're breathing, you're going to have some pretty tough things. And some of them might seem overwhelming. In fact, they may be overwhelming. But what the book uh, endeavors to do is to help us to trust God 
uh, when life isn't funny and does it in a way that you interject humor into very sober situations in an appropriate way that helps us take a deep breath and soldier on. So I commend you uh, for that. Um, This is your first book. What's next? (laughs) I laughed when I read it. What's next? Um, You know, I have to confess, it's really it's really interesting when you reach a life goal and you say, okay, wrote a book, check. And then you're depressed afterwards because people don't really tell you that that's what happens. But it does. When you it's write, like giving birth, but you don't yeah, really. Yeah, you're done. You have post book yeah. partum or whatever. You're like, <laughs> okay. I don't, and I haven't written a stick since. So, <laughs> but God is so gracious to me. And I think that's really the point is there are seasons. And by the season of rest, I finally got the book launched in I think it was September. Now I feel like writing again. And so I, I have several books uh, in the in my, the back of my mind that are somewhat in stages of done. I want to finish a book about Paul and I, and it's a memoir that's like 80% done. So I want to get that done. And then I want to do more really God books on growing older and aging. I think that's a really important yeah. issue to explore. I think the times are so difficult right now. I'm then another one, whether it's a whole book or articles, is just how do we, you know, navigate a world that is just so hard. And uh it can be, you know, it's like God's walking me through that day by day and my relationship with him and and you and I are both participants in Bible study fellowship. And I think that that is such a amazing ministry that we're able to continue to grow in the Lord in that. So yeah. hopefully there's more books. It's it's uh, interesting to retire and learn how to just kind of navigate yourself. So it's been a fun year. Yeah. Well, and you're you're relatively young for retirement, so you have a long road ahead of you, should the Lord will and you live, which is what, one thing I'm now saying to myself. <laughs> the Lord wills and I live, I will do this and that. Yeah, you know what's ironic about that? If Paul hadn't died, I wouldn't be able to be retired now and write books. So it's like the death, that terribly difficult period of time made it so that I could retire as a widow at 61. Mm. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you, for the sake of others who are listening who have a life goal, I, you know, I would like to write one day. Um, it's easy to say that. Uh, I've had people say to me, and, and trust me, I have no intention of writing, but you should write a book. Write a book, write a book about what? Do you know how many books there are in the world? I I always respond. How do you know when God is saying, not only do you have the desire to write, but I have an assignment for you. I want you to write for me on a particular topic. How did that unfold? I have to say, I have to correct Georgine. She has written a book. Undaunted is on Amazon with your name on it and some articles in it with the Undaunted people. And it's a wonderful book. Um. I've come full circle on this to just a humble stance of if God calls you to write something, you just need to write it. And then he's going to take it the steps and to the places and the people that it needs to go to. The hard part is the world kind of says, well, this isn't successful or this is successful or, you know, you just got to kind of get all that stuff out of your head and just think about that one person that might read it. I I remember being shocked and amazed when the reviews on the book um, on Amazon were people I didn't know. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is reaching people I don't even know. And that was exciting because there's only so much we can do humanly to reach all these people. But the word goes out and never comes back with yeah, that voice. Yeah. So. And there's something about being called by God to do something, to faithfully walk in 
the path that he has for you and God will bring the fruit. Yep. He's asking us to be obedient and diligent. And I've watched you over a period of, of uh, well, was it years? Years. Is that right? Years. Years. To be diligent and faithful, to purpose, to finish it, and then to bring it to full fruition. And that's the book that we're talking about today. Um, that's that's a challenge. Everybody wants the, we're going to have the, the book launch. Everybody wants the book tour but everything that goes into it from from the very beginning when God calls you to that point is where the real work is required. And that's a hard work that God does where there's no applause, there's nobody looking on, but you're just being faithful to what God is saying. And I think that applies to virtually every area of your Christian life, whether you're called to write a book or you're a musician or you're a parent raising children or whatever it happens to be. That faithfulness is what God is calling us to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if listeners want to connect with you, uh, want a copy of the book, what's the best way for them to do that? The easiest thing to do is just go to funnyfaithwalk.com because it'll pop up and there's a link right to Amazon and it's also in Barnes & Noble. So you can do that and then you can also um, go ahead and give me just your email address and I'll send you the comedy bits. So that's kind of, it's just easier than saying, okay, because... You, Believe it or not, other books have been written that say, really, God, are you kidding me? I was shocked. <laughs> so it's easier. You don't have to learn how to spell my name. Just go to funnyfaithwalk.com and voila, you're there. As you're preparing for the next um, leg of the journey, you said that you're inspired to write again. Um, any advice for those who have finished one thing and God is calling them to start something else? Again, that, that faithfulness that he's calling all of us to. It's a it's a weird message, but go ahead and rest. I think that there are seasons, and the more I do this and just walking closer to the Lord, the more I realize that I used to run through life with my hair on fire, and it's like God really isn't asking me to do that. He's asking me to just look at him every day and say, Lord, what are we doing today? And to really embrace the process of what's happening. Recently, someone said to me, he said, everything that happens to you in life is a process of um, God teaching you to be more like God, be more like Jesus. And so as I'm plunging the toilet, which is stopped up again, I'm like, <laughs> how could this possibly be teaching me to be more like Jesus? He didn't have toilets. And then I'm like, ah, it is the endurance. It is the, you know, you just take one foot in front of the other, do the next right thing and keep going and just turn to him at every turn. Yeah. Again, if you'd like more information, funnyfaithwalk.com. You can find out about the book there and about some of the other resources that she has available. I just have to tell you, Arlene, I am so proud of you. Again, I confess I'm a personal friend. I've walked with you and observed you through this whole lengthy season that ultimately gave birth to this book. And I'm looking forward to future work as well. And uh, just want to thank you for your faithfulness and the example that you've set for me as I think about the things that God is calling me to do. As you know, I'm caring for my 90, well, now, as of today, my 93-year-old mother, and that has required a a type of endurance that I've never um, had to um, have before. And your example has helped to inspire me to just put one foot in front of the other, plunge the toilet as many times as it requires and show up. So thank you so much for the book and thank you for uh, for spending the time with us here today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland-only segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, today happens to be my mother's 93rd birthday. 
Yes, my mom is 93 years old, and today also marks, I believe, it's either the 30th or the 31st anniversary of our kidney transplant, our kidney exchange, if you will. They tell us it's only about 15, 16 years that a kidney is supposed to last uh, when it's been donated, even by someone, a familial uh, relation. But my mom has... uh, held that kidney for about 30 years. She's still going strong. There's obviously signs of some decline, but um, I'm just so grateful to have my mom with us still in her 93rd year. Today, we had a little special lunch for her to celebrate her birthday with a big party coming up on Saturday. But we were surprised by a visitor, Timothy Greenwich, who's been a soloist with the Portland Singing Christmas Tree of Uh, a vocalist in the Portland metro area and in various places across the country for many years, came to my house, brought a little recorder, not a little recorder, it was a professional uh, recorder, and he serenaded my mom for about 20 minutes this afternoon over her lunch, just singing Christmas songs, encouraging her, being a blessing to her. I'm telling you, I was in tears the whole time. My mom was in utter shock that uh, Timothy Greenwich would come to her house to sing to her. But it was just a wonderful, (laughs) wonderful expression of a man who is immensely talented, but extremely humble at the same time. And I just wanted to say for those of you who know something of my mom, happy birthday to her. She's still around. She's 93. And we are grateful that God has given us um, this length of time to try to bless her, to encourage her and to return to her what she invested in us. So happy birthday, Mama. All right, let's uh, continue to march through the day's headlines. Well, the U.N. General Assembly overwhelmingly passed a non-binding resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. It's a call the Paralyzed Security Council has so far failed to make. Well, the body, which includes all 193 U.N. member nations, voted 153 in favor of the resolution, exceeding the 140 or so countries that have routinely backed resolutions condemning Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Ten countries, including the United States and Israel, vote against, while 23 abstained. The U.S. uh, vetoed a similar resolution in the U.N. Security Council last week. The resolution reiterates that all parties involved in the conflict comply with obligations under international law, specifically in terms of the protection of civilians, while also demanding the immediate and unconditional release of all hostages. Yemen's Houthi movement said on Tuesday they struck a Norwegian oil and chemical tanker with a rocket in its latest operation to protest against Israel's bombardment of Gaza. The Iran-lined group targeted the ship after its crew rejected all warning calls. Houthi military spokesperson said in a televised statement he vowed that the Houthis would continue blocking ships heading to Israel's ports until Israel allows the entry of food and medical aid into Gaza, more than 1,000 miles from the Houthi seat of power in Sana'a. Uh, President Joe Biden has come under mounting pressure for not being able to muster the courage to respond to the attacks from the Houthi terrorists and other Iranian-backed Islamic terror groups in that region that have been repeatedly attacking U.S. forces in the region since the 17th of October. (sighs) Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reportedly told Biden that if the U.S. does not take action against the Yemen-based Houthi terrorists, Israel will which comes after the uh, terrorist group had repeatedly targeted shipping vessels with ties to Israel. American officials are becoming frustrated that the administration's inaction to deter growing attacks continues. 
41 Brown University students were arrested after they held a sit-in on school property, demanding that the university call for an immediate ceasefire and divest from companies that allegedly facilitate the Israeli military occupation of Gaza. The disruption to secure buildings is not acceptable, and the university is prepared to escalate the level of criminal charges for future incidents of students occupying secure buildings. That's a quote from Brian Clark, a school spokesperson, speaking to the student newspaper on Monday night. The students were photographed, fingerprinted, and provided their arrest paperwork to expedite the process and avoid processing arrests in two locations, Clark added. One reporter said that Brown University has just released a statement confirming 41 students were arrested and charged with trespassing. The school says it will fully it fully expects uh, to recommend more significant misdemeanor charges for any further incidents. A task force launched last summer to help rejuvenate Portland is calling for the declaration of a 90 day fentanyl emergency. A ban on public drug use, increased shelter capacity and more law enforcement as part of an effort to combat the converging homelessness, drug abuse and mental health crisis that's ravaged the uh, the city. Among its 10 recommendations announced on Monday, the Portland Central City Task Force is also calling for a concerted effort to clean the city by targeting trouble spots for trash and graffiti. The removal of any plywood still covering downtown windows that was erected during the 2020 racial justice protests and riots and a moratorium on new taxes. The task force proposal for increasing shelter capacity and funneling an additional three million dollars in county funds into daytime services for those experiencing homelessness are also ongoing. House Republicans are teeing up a vote as early as, well, sometime today to formalize their ongoing impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. The resolution will direct three powerful committees to continue investigating the president to see if there are sufficient grounds to impeach him. House Republicans, since uh, retaking control of the chamber in January, have focused their attention on the Biden family's business dealings, particularly those of the president's son, Hunter. But they have so far found no hard evidence President Biden was directly involved in or benefited from the practices, as they're repeatedly alleging. Well, Speaker uh, Mike uh, Johnson has defended the probe, characterizing it as a legal decision and previously projected optimism that resolution will pass. But after the historic expulsion of Representative George Santos, the House GOP has only a three-vote margin of error. The chairman of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, says that the House resolution approving an impeachment inquiry of Joe Biden will give Republicans the upper hand when it comes to uncovering evidence in the investigation of corruption. One America's uh, John Hines has more from um, Capitol Hill on the subject. San Francisco Supervisor Dean Preston claimed the city's homelessness problems were absolutely the result of capitalism, and it was counterproductive to arrest people openly doing drugs. Preston's District 5 included the Tenderloin District, an area known for its open-air drug market. Nearly half of the city's homeless population lived in this district in 2022. The Democratic Socialist supervisor argued his district was particularly affected by homelessness because of the county's economic structure. I think what you're seeing in the tenderloin is absolutely the result of capitalism and what happens in capitalism to the people at the bottom rung. The local leader reportedly remarked in a new documentary by the U.K. outlet Unheard, and that's spelled H-E-R-D. Dean Preston, the supervisor representing District 5, has also been very open about his support for the uh, defund the police movement, 
I think we have a very, very bloated police budget, he has uh, said. All kinds of waste in the police department. I mean, I could cut $100 million out of the police department. Apparently, public safety is not his concern. Hunter Biden exposed himself this morning on Capitol Hill, taking to the microphone and railing against MAGA Republicans for having unfairly picked on him. For six years, he whined, I've been the target of the unrelenting Trump attack machine shouting, where's Hunter? Well, here's my answer. I am here. He was there, all right, but only long enough to denounce those MAGA Republicans. Then he disappeared, skipping his agreed-upon deposition before the House Oversight Committee. He, uh, we're supposed this um, qualifies as acceptable behavior, but only because they've set the bar so low, setting aside the... uh, Practices that he is known to have engaged in and the blow and the uh, money grubbing and the narcissistic selfies and so on. Um, Hunter recently took to a podcast to blast the GOP critics using. um, I wouldn't say colorful language because that uh, elevates it to a level it doesn't deserve, but um, unacceptable language saying they're trying to destroy a presidency and trying to kill him. This is what a uh, shrink might call projection. Well, this morning. With attorney A.B. Lowell at his side, he gave us more carefully worded screed. Let me state as clearly as I can, he said, my father was not financially involved in my business, not as a participating lawyer, not as a board member of Burisma, not my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not in my investment at home nor abroad, and certainly not as an artist, end quote. He went on to say how proud he is of his degrees from Georgetown and Yale Law School and how mean his MAGA Republican critics have been to impugn his character and invade his privacy and mock his struggle with addiction. There is no fairness or decency in what these Republicans are doing, he continued. They explained naked photos of me during an oversight hearing. Strangely, he neglected to mention that he's now under multiple indictments from the Biden Justice Department. There's an old legal expression that Hunter and his legal team seem to be employing here. When you have the facts, you pound the facts. When you have the law, you pound the law. And when you have neither, you pound the table. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, while Joe likes to talk of bringing unity, what he's done during his time in office is, is encourage more division, not only across the country, but even within his own party. Is it any wonder, then, that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu wants little to do with the administration's post-war plan for Gaza? Well, on Tuesday, the two leaders clashed as Biden insisted that Israel can cannot be allowed to control Gaza and that an eventual uh, two-state solution must be the long-term goal. Of course, he's not paying attention to the fact that there are those in Gaza who do not want a two-state solution because it would mean Israel continues to survive. The president even threw Israel under the bus by claiming they're starting to lose U.S. and European Union support by indiscriminate bombing. Netanyahu quickly rejected Biden's plan. After the great sacrifice of our civilians and our soldiers, I will not allow the entry into Gaza of those who educate for terrorism, support terrorism, and finance terrorism. I will not allow Israel to repeat the mistake of Oslo, end quote. Well, that was a reference to the 1993 Oslo Accords that established the Palestinian Authority, which was subsequently overtaken by Hamas in 2007. Netanyahu is right to be wary of embracing any deal that offers the promise of a two-state solution, which the Palestinians have never agreed to pursue. Furthermore, he sees a Democrat party divided over support for Israel versus Gaza and cannot trust that the administration would actually prioritize Israel's sovereignty rights. 
Well, beginning in January, Ford Motor Company will effectively cut the production rate of its all-electric F-150 Lightning trucks in half. Ford's electric vehicle plant in Dearborn, Michigan, where it makes the Lightning, will drop its production of the truck from 3,200 per week to roughly 1,600 per week. The reason? The basic economic principles of supply and demand. According to a Ford spokesman, we'll continue to match production with customer demand. Ford production cut comes as the, or rather on the heels of the automaker canceling some $12 billion in EV investments. And while Ford has continued to see sales of its Lightning uh, uh, grow, hitting a record high in November of 4,400 sold. It's far from the significant percentage of its overall truck sales. Through the third quarter of this year, Ford has sold 561,110 F-Series trucks, and of those combined with October and November sales, just 20,365 were Lightnings or EVs. Well, earlier today in the COP28 summit in Dubai, government ministers from nearly 200 countries agreed to deal that to a deal, rather, that calls for a movement away from fossil fuels. It was a lukewarm victory for the green movement, especially after a previous proposal went down in flames amid heated and widespread backlash. The latest proposal, published by the UAE, uh, United Arab Emirates, earlier on Wednesday, called for transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly, and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. Still, a funny thing happened on our uh, on our way to a fossil fuel-free future. As PJ Media's Rick Moran writes, squabbling delegates have failed to agree on a plan to phase out fossil fuels, leaving the issue in limbo and calling into question the entire COP process as a venue to deal with climate change. Well, that phase-out plan was what the Greens were looking for, but sanity seems to have prevailed, at least for the time being. Nikki Haley reeled in New Hampshire's biggest endorsement when the state's popular and charismatic governor finally made it official. We are all in on Nikki Haley, said Chris Sununu at the raucous campaign event yesterday. Haley, though, has a lot of ground to make up for. Forty days away from the primary, she's polling at just under 19 percent in the Granite State, well behind Donald Trump at 44 percent, but comfortably ahead of Chris Christie at 13 percent and Ron DeSantis set woeful Nine percent. It's no surprise that Sununu didn't endorse Trump. He doesn't like the former president, a reality that might have something to do with his family's decades long connection with the Bushes. People know that we have a country to save, said Haley at a New Hampshire uh, dinner. Um, um, this, it was a diner that, uh, this morning, and they know that it's time for a new generational leader. Wouldn't it be nice if we had to had a live free or die country? Sununu added, this isn't just Let's get behind a candidate that can win. That's obvious. This is really getting behind the best qualified person to be president of the United States, end quote. What he meant to say, of course, was that Haley is the best qualified person besides Trump, and we're not so sure Haley can win, not when she's trailing Trump nationally by 48 points. Haley, however, touts her head-to-head numbers against the uh, uh, incumbent Joe Biden, noting that she's beating him in one poll by 17 points. But that cuts both ways. What centrists and moderates find appealing in a candidate is often at odds with what primary voters find appealing, and primary voters are the ones who decide presidential primaries. Well, a stunning new battleground poll from CNN shows Donald Trump leading Joe Biden 50 to 40 uh, in uh, reliably bluish Michigan, a state Biden carried 51 to 48 in 2020. It's the latest in a steady stream of bad polling news that has the Democrats in full freakout mode. 
The same CNN poll, however, showed something equally stunning in the other direction. Whereas Trump leads Biden by 10 points in Michigan, he leads in normally red Georgia in just half that, 49 to 44 percent. So what gives? Has Georgia really become less reliably red than Michigan? Consider Georgia's blue creep during the past quarter century. Trump lost Georgia by 0.2 percent in 2020 after having won it by 5 percent in 2016. Romney won it by 8 percent in 2012. McCain by 5 percent in 2008. And Bush won it by 16 percent in 2004 and by 12 percent in 2000. Perhaps part of that trend is due to Georgia having swapped spit with Hollywood in recent years, thereby attracting a more progressive cohort of voters. And perhaps part of it is due to the undoing of the great migration of the 20th century. The return of blacks from the Rust Belt back to the South as economic decay afflicts the blue states in the Midwest and the Northeast, while job opportunities abound in the red states on the Sun Belt. Another possible explanation for Michigan's shift is the throw of uh, throw the bums out attitude of citizens under Democrat Governor Gretchen Whitmer. While Georgia prospers under the steady and competent Republican governorship of Brian Kemp. Well, New York Democrats have successfully orchestrated a district map coup as the state's Court of Appeals agreed to throw out the current court ordered map and order the redrawing of a new one. The trouble is the new redrawn redistricting MAC will have the uh, will have to pass the New York Democrat controlled legislature. Back in 2014, the Empire State passed a constitutional amendment that banned the partisan gerrymandering of election districts and created a 10 member bipartisan redistricting committee or commission. However, when the commission deadlocked over a new district map, the Democrat run state legislature stepped in and the gerrymandering it's um, of the redistricting MAC. Commenced with a court ruling, Democrats are now in position to effectively guarantee that their gerrymandering map, likely resulting in Republicans losing at least four House seats, will be the one agreed to, at least temporarily. This is a coup since the court effectively greenlighted the Democrats map, even as the issue works its way through the appellate courts. And Wisconsin pro-life fire bomber has been uh, arrested last year. A pro-life center in Madison, Wisconsin, was firebombed. Uh, by a, a member of the militant pro-abortion group Jane's Revenge. DNA evidence at the scene led to the arrest of 29-year-old biochemist by the name of, well, I won't be able to pronounce the name, who eventually pled guilty to the crime. He or she, and again, I can't tell from the name, is now facing a minimum of five years to a maximum of 20 years in prison. Oh, here we go. He's set to be sentenced in February. He should be classified as a domestic terrorist since the Department of Justice National Security head Matthew Olin observed that he had used an incendiary device in violation of federal law in connection with his efforts to terrorize and intimidate a private organization. There have been more than 100 attacks on pro-life centers and organizations across the country since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. But so far, only one, only one pro-abortionist has been charged with any of these crimes. Wow. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing and Dave King for engineering. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.